Well, first, let me wish everyone a happy Mother's Day, especially uh, to my mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. And to the mother of our two boys, happy Mother's Day. Um, but let me expand that a little bit. I know that uh, there are those in our church family who may not be a mom, um, maybe have been widowed or haven't had children. And I think there's a lot of women in our church family, whether they have children of their own or not, who are incredibly nurturing, caring, and compassionate in very motherly ways. So when I say Happy Mother's Day, it is intended to include you all and really appreciate all that you do within our church body. Well, I'm excited about what the Lord has for us this morning and the things that uh, we'll walk through together. As we get started, I confess to you that this probably shouldn't be something I that I take humor, uh, humor in, but uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but on the internet there's these uh, pictures of people who are going through a haunted house, right? And it captures them right at the moment where there's something that obviously jumps out and scares them, and boom, they snap a picture of people in this frightened state. And I don't know why, but I laugh out loud at these things, right? And there's a few of the scenes that always grab my attention, they make me laugh, you know, there's these big guys who have these muscle T-shirts. I mean, they're big and, and, and tatted up, and I mean, they look mean, right? And I'm sure they're walking through that haunted house saying, nothing's going to scare me. But when they snap that picture, all you see is this frail little woman and this big old muscular guy hiding behind them because they can't stand to be in front. The other, the other scene that it makes me laugh is the, what I call the group hug. It's where everybody gets scared and they, out of instinct, just hug each other. Not sure what that's supposed to accomplish, but... That's what happens. Of course, my favorite, I think, is the one where you got a group of about seven or eight people, and they're all in there, and you see this group just scared, you know, and this frightened look on their face, and then all you see is half of a guy who's like this. Because he's gone, right? That's me. That's, I think that's what I would probably do. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, we lived out in the country uh, outside of Graham, Texas, and uh, I, the boys uh, all had a room together, and I remember being in the top bunk, and I don't know how I perceived this or whatever, but I heard a noise. I leaped out, out of that top muck. I don't think I chose to use the ladder. I think I just went over the top. And my parents will remember this, especially my dad. But I run to their room, and about eight feet away from the bed, I take a flying leap, right? And my head hits my dad's mouth, and we both start screaming. <laughs> Come to find out, it was actually an owl uh, that was outside my window. And I actually heard that owl in uh, the months and weeks to come. And it didn't quite scare me as much as it had that first night. But that's the way fear works. It's magnified by mystery, isn't it? Because once I understood what it was that was making that noise outside the window, it wasn't that big of a deal anymore. Because once the, the mystery is removed, then the fear is minimized well when we look at our miracle today we're going to find the disciples in a place of fear in fact they're fearing for their lives and that mystery uh, of fear is magnified whenever somebody comes towards them walking on water we know that to be jesus at the time they didn't know what they were seeing they thought as it says in scripture that it was a ghost and that fear was magnified with the mystery of what was happening But once they understood who it was, then all their worry turned into worship. 
their fear was overwhelmed by a sense of peace. You see, our growing knowledge of Christ and the awareness of His presence in our life should accomplish the very same thing. See, life is filled with the fear of the unknown, isn't it? Next week is Senior Sunday, and we have a big group of graduating seniors this year, 11 of them graduating. And I bet if I were to speak to the parents of these graduating students, there would be an element of fear, a little bit of anxiety as the the kids that they have raised are now going to be out on their own underneath out from underneath that umbrella of protection. There's an element of fear there. I know that there are some in our body who are in the midst of a job uh, transition. Some are unemployed, being laid off. Um, I know Mitchell and Michelle are moving to a new place. There's a little bit of fear. There's excitement, I'm sure, but we've got to find a new church home. And we're going to be in a new house, and we're going to make new friends. And there's all kinds of this fear of the unknown. And, well, I tell you what, you don't have to look very long in what's happening in our world today, and there's an element of fear there too, isn't it? Of uncertainty, of what our future holds. Life is filled with the fear of the unknown. The question is, how do we find peace in the midst of all these uncertainties? Right? Well, I believe our passage this morning will help answer that question. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we anticipate that what you have in your word will light our path and give us an insight in how to navigate the the circumstances in which we live in your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. That was good timing, wasn't it? If you will, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 15. And let's look at this passage together. John chapter 6, verse 15. John chapter 6, verse 15 says, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, he, in, he sent, excuse me, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet gone to them. Now, what's interesting about the account that we'll look at together this morning is it's included not only here in the Gospel of John, but also in Mark and Matthew's account as well. They combine, give us a real clear picture of what's happening in this particular scene, this event in the life of the disciples. And they all start out, though, with this concern that happened as we looked at last week on the tail end of having fed the 5,000 where this crowd had kind of reached a fever pitch and they were ready to make Jesus king. We talked about last week how Jesus was already king, but he was just unwilling to be king on their terms. So Jesus instructs his disciples to go back to the lake, get in a boat and head across the Sea of Galilee. While he stays behind, dismisses the crowd, and then goes to spend some time alone in prayer. See, I believe Jesus knew the emotional power of that moment. It's what psychologists call groupthink. It's where somebody has an idea that they begin to share and and encourage others, and pretty soon everybody's embracing this same idea as truth. The disciples, 
Jesus knows, could easily be distracted by the opinions of the people and misunderstand the mission of Jesus altogether. And so I believe he sent them away for their protection. And ultimately, I believe that's the reason he sent the crowd away as well, for their protection also. It's important for the disciples as well as the people to understand the truth of who Jesus is, not based upon their own assumptions of what is true, but instead on what Jesus has revealed to be true. See, they wanted to make Jesus king. They wanted to to put him on the throne. But Jesus knew that it could only happen by way of the cross. His mission was to do God's will in God's way for our highest good. Jesus was already king. But without the cross, we could not be his people. Do you understand that? Jesus was already king, but without the cross, we could not be his people. What I believe Jesus did in sending the people away was an act of gracious love. He was protecting them, ultimately from their own worst enemy. You know who that is? Themselves. Their ideas, their opinions, their traditions of what the Messiah had come to do but there are no christians in god's kingdom without the cross and this was a truth that they had not come to understand now the timing of these events is also important if you'll look at verse 16 it talks about how when evening came the disciples went down to the sea by all accounts this was probably around seven or eight o'clock in the evening it had begun to grow dark, and Jesus had sent them down there to head across the Sea of Galilee, and he says that they were going to Capernaum. Now, we know from uh, the map that Capernaum is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're on the northeast side, so they're kind of traveling across the tip of the Sea of Galilee, okay? Usually about a two-hour trip by boat. Because it was already late, much of this journey over those two hours, would be in the dark. Now, you and I listen to that and think, ooh, that's kind of scary. But remember, many of these guys are fishermen. <laughs> and they were accustomed to this. This would be routine for them. You remember, when Jesus first encounters Peter, and he tells Peter to cast the nets on the other side of the boat, you remember what Peter's response was? He thought it was crazy, right? And the reason is, is because they had been fishing all night long. So to be out on the ocean or to be out on the sea and to, to navigate the waters at night was not a big deal to them. This this was routine. But what was in store was something that they did not expect to happen. Now, before we look at that, I, I want to point out something. I, I want to point out the fact that that the disciples were doing what Jesus instructed them to do. He sent them out, told them to head in across the lake on those boats. And so we can conclude from that that they were in the middle of God's will, right? Headed right into the middle of a storm. Let's look at that together. Verse 18. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they 
beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on the land to which they were going. All right, hold your finger there. Turn over to Mark. Mark chapter 6 as well. Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 45 with me. This is his account of these same, this same event. Let's fill in some gaps with what he has to say. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. It says there, And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida. It's the same area, Capernaum, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, And he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea as he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with, with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, for which, the, but their heart was hardened. Interesting, as we put these two together, we get a very interesting picture of what happens. What we see is that the disciples were a few hours out from land, and the winds have begun to pick up. And the waves have, have started to build. Now, do you remember how long this trip should have taken? A couple of hours, right? It's not a very long trip. But based on Mark's account, it tells us that they were out on the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning. So if you do the math, they've been out on this sea for about 9 hours, rowing against the wind and the waves. Now... Put this into perspective, right? Let's say you're going to the gym. Hop on that rowing machine and stay there for nine hours straight. Okay? That's the experience that these men are having. I think it also tells us that they're way off course by now. So let me ask you. Do you think they were scared? Oh, I do. I think they were scared. I think they were exhausted. And ultimately, I think they were, they were lost. Mark's gospel says that while they were four miles out to sea in the pitch black night, while he was praying on the shore, Jesus sees them straining at the oars. <laughs> think about what that just said. Right? Did you catch it? Pitch black night. They're four miles out to sea. Jesus is praying on the shore. And he sees them straining at the oars. How does that happen? Well, I think it happens because he sees them from God's perspective as he intercedes for them in prayer. Notice, he's not worried. He's not panicked. Oh my gosh, look at this storm. Who would ever thought? Right? He's interceding for them. He knows that they are in the middle of God's will. He sent them there. And as treacherous as may seem, it's the very safest place 
they could be. So even though Jesus is not in the boat, he really is with them every step of the way. And when it's time, Jesus walks to them on the water. Mark has an interesting comment in his account. He says that Jesus intended to pass them by. Now, let me clarify for you. This is not Jesus walking by saying, hey, guys, uh, why are you struggling? See you on the other side. That's not what's intended here. When it talks about being passing them by, what it means is that making his presence known. Not unlike when God passed by Moses on the mountain in the wilderness. Not unlike God passed by Elijah in that soft, gentle wind. In each case, it's God's way of saying, here I am, take courage, I'm with you, do not be afraid. As we can see from from Mark's account, Jesus was always with them. He was always aware. But now he has made his presence known to them. But as you might expect, this didn't immediately calm their fears, didn't it? In fact, the, the mystery of his presence only magnified their fear. And do you blame them? I mean, they're tired. They've been out there for nine hours rowing against these wind and waves. They're scared. And, and then all of a sudden, something they, they've never seen before. Somebody's standing on the water out beside them. <laughs> but notice how he calms their fear and concern. Look at verse 50 again. They were frightened, but immediately he, Jesus, spoke with them and said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. John's account says something similar. It is I. Do not be afraid. In our English translation, it says what it does there. It is I were the words that that Jesus used. But I want you to know that in the original language, this likely has much more significance. Because what Jesus says is, take courage. It is I, or ego ego am I, which literally means I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus identifies himself to the disciples in the very same way that God revealed himself to Moses. Do you remember that account? When Moses was having this conversation about going back into the Egypt to, to release the Israelites from slavery. And they're having this conversation with one another. And at one point, uh, Moses turns to, to God and says, well, who do I tell them sent me? And in response, God says in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you this would become known as the covenant name of god yahweh i am and when jesus spoke to his disciples that is the name he used now i want you to pause here a moment and think about what we've looked at together in mark and john's account of this incident okay and as you think about this i want you to consider if there's something missing that you recognize normally in this account? Is there something that that is very popular and familiar about Jesus walking on the water? What else happened when Jesus walked on the water? Peter walked on the water. And so I think we need to ask the question, why did Mark and, and John not include it? It's only in Matthew's account. 
Now, I don't know that there is an answer to that, at least not one that's obvious. But I want to ask you this. When you hear people talking about or, or even teaching on this account, this miracle, what is usually the focus of everyone's attention? What Jesus did or what Peter did? What Peter did. Now, this is just my opinion. But I think perhaps the reason that both Mark and John left it out is because this is not about Peter. This is about Jesus. Granted, it's, it's really impressive, and there's some really important things that we could gain from this uh, insight, from what we see Peter and his willingness to do. But in the end, this is not his story. The focus should be on Jesus and not those who follow him, however impressive that may be. I think John and Mark may have left it out so that we don't become distracted by a person when we should be focused on Jesus. And not only that, I just wonder sometimes if if Peter's actions were as commendable as we make them out to be. In fact, let's look at it together. I'll show you what I mean. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Verse 27. We'll start there. Verse 27 says, but immediately, we'll pick up where the, uh, at a point we'll be recognized from the other accounts. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I, I am. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now, I'll tell you up front, this is not a hill I would die on. This could be very much a very genuine step of faith and an example of God's power when we believe. And to Peter's credit, he didn't try to swim back to the boat. He didn't call to his friends. He cried out to Jesus as his only hope. But that statement in verse 28 almost sounds like a challenge to me. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. See, Jesus had just revealed himself as the I am. And we know from Mark's account of this incident that the disciples, including Peter, did not gain any insight from what happened in the feeding of the 5,000s because their, their heart was hard. Maybe Peter, as he was known to do... Here's the words of Jesus, and not unlike the people that we talked about last week, says to Jesus, okay, prove it. Prove it. If that's you, then make me come to you on the water. And all of a sudden, he steps out on the water. (laughs) Takes a few steps towards Jesus, and then immediately begins to sink. And Jesus, reflecting on this, says that it was his faith. His lack of faith that caused him to sink. His, his doubt in that moment. What do you think he doubted? Do you doubt Jesus' instruction? 
to step out in the water? Did he doubt Jesus was the one true God? What did he doubt? Whatever it was, it caused him to sink, being distracted by the waves and the wind around him. Instead of centering his trust on Jesus. But here's the good news. If there's anything that I think we can learn from the example of Peter, it it, it may be this. God's grace is always greater than our faith. Because even in that moment of doubt, he cried out to Jesus, and it says he immediately took his hand. Where there's the, the sin of doubt and disbelief, God's grace abounds all the more. And remember, as I think about this account, I I think, well, you know, they still had to get back in the boat, right? So what happened? Did Jesus carry him? Did he just lift him up and then they walked on the water back to the boat? I don't know. But what we do know is that when they got back in the boat, the, the wind immediately stopped, the lake was completely still, and all of a sudden they were on the shore of their destination. Now, pardon the pun, but there's a whole boatload of miracles that took place on this one event. That was for you, Carrie. But just think about it. Jesus walked on water. Peter walked on water. The winds and the storm immediately calmed. And they found themselves instantly on the shore of their destination after having been lost in the middle of the sea. So no wonder the response of the disciples was so strong. Look at verse 33. And those who were in the boat, that means every single one, worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Everyone, everyone, including Peter, respond by saying, we believe what you said is true. You truly are God's son. And whatever worry they had in that moment had now been turned to worship. Why did Jesus send them into the storm? Why did Jesus reveal his presence to them on the water? For this reason, right here. Mark says that their hearts were hardened at the feeding of the 5,000. But what happened here has brought them to their knees. And the evidence of, of their growing faith and understanding of who Jesus is, is their willingness and desire To worship Him. It's God's gracious act of love that brought them to this place. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, what brings you to your knees? What brings you to your knees? How does God work in your life to cultivate a heart of worship? Now I want us to answer that question together and consider some things with one another and let me suggest to you three ways that I think God works in our life to cultivate a heart of worship the first one is through difficulties the second is through devotion and the third is through prayer let's look at those together first of all Mark's insight as I've already mentioned is very important and significant for us understanding what took place here with the disciples because he's the one that tells us that they were astonished is what happened on the sea because they didn't gain any insight with what happened with the feeding of the 5,000 because their hearts were hard. 
In other words, God used the hard times of what took place on the Sea of Galilee to break through the hard hearts of the disciples. As we mentioned earlier, He sent them out into that storm. He knew they were straining at the oars and He allowed them to struggle. He came to them on the water. And He was silent first. He was aware of what was happening. And everything Jesus did was intended to bring His disciples to a deeper place of faith. But notice... How easy it was for for them to lose sight of God's presence even though Jesus was standing right there with them. Instead, they were exhausted from their labor. They were overwhelmed by their circumstances. And the last thing in their mind was being able to see God in the midst of all this chaos. Now, does that hit home for anybody other than me? (laughs) Think about that. They were exhausted from their efforts, overwhelmed by their circumstances. And it was difficult for them to to see God in the midst of all the chaos. How many of you have ever been in that place? How many of you are in that place right now? Like the disciples, we can be going through the routine of life, carrying on as normal. This shouldn't be that big of a deal. Then, bam, all of a sudden, It hits us. We are hit by these waves and this wind that comes across. Wind that that starts to blow maybe from from hurtful criticisms or, or personal failures. You're hit by waves of disappointment and discouragement. And every single time it pounds you farther and farther off course. The next thing you know, you're in a really dark place. And you feel very alone. But listen to me closely. You're not alone. And you never were. You're not alone. And you never were. And here's how I know that to be true. Because just as Jesus was fully aware as he interceded for them that day, the very same thing is happening for you right now. Turn to Romans Chapter 8, verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Romans chapter 8, 34 says this. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Don't miss this. Who also intercedes for us. That's you. So exactly what was happening that day with his disciples is happening in this moment for you. He is fully aware of all that is going on in your life and he is with you every step of the way. In fact, read what it says from there. Those beautiful words beginning in verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Very often, God will use hard times to break through our hard hearts. But I want you to know that no matter what you're going through, you are not alone. There's a passage that my boys and I know from Moses' words to Joshua when he says, be strong and courageous, right? Don't be afraid, for God is with you. He will not leave you. He will never forsake you. God is with us in the midst of our difficulties, but but also in our heart of devotion. Did you notice that the disciples' fear was inversely proportional to their understanding of who Jesus was? In other words, the more they knew about Jesus, the less they were moved by the circumstances that surrounded them. And I want to tell you, the very same thing is true for you and I. I want you to know, That praise God, he doesn't play games of hide and seek. In fact, it's just the opposite. (laughs) Like he has with the disciples, he has made his presence known to us. He wants us to find him. In fact, he says that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And Just think about the the gifts of God's grace that, that he has given us. We have His Word, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We have His Son, Jesus Christ, His life and ministry that has revealed to us the heart of God in ways that nothing else can compare. We have the gift of His Holy Spirit. As Paul tells the Ephesians, that our hearts might be strengthened, rooted and grounded in love, growing in the knowledge of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So if you want to cultivate a heart of worship in your life and find peace in the midst of your circumstances, then get to know Him. Be devoted to knowing what He says. And not just knowing what He says, but believing what He says. And not just believing what He says, but doing what He says. Growing in our knowledge of God is an important part of our discipleship. The more you understand of Jesus and His love, the less fear you have in the circumstances that surround you, no matter how fierce that storm may be. Because in the end, you cannot trust that which you do not know, and you will not worship that which you do not trust. Did you hear that? Listen to it again. You cannot trust that which you do not know. And you will not worship that which you do not trust. So know Him and be known by Him. Let God cultivate that heart of worship in your difficulties. Let Him cultivate that heart of worship in your devotion. And finally, let Him cultivate that heart of worship in your prayers. Here's one of the things that I think we can see from the example of Jesus praying is that 
through our time in prayer, very often we see things from God's perspective. I can't tell you how many times that, that I've prayed for something and that situation never changes, but my heart does. The way I see it does. And that's the point. Prayer has less to do with me changing God's mind and more to do with God changing my heart. Right? It's like Philip Yancey says. He says this, Prayer invites us to rest in the fact that God is in control and that the world's problems are ultimately God's, not ours. If I spend enough time with God, I will inevitably begin to look at the world from the point of view that most resembles God's own. What is faith, after all, but believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse? I love that statement. (laughs) Believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That's what brings us to a place of worship when we see and find and experience that God is faithful, where our heart is changed and we come to know Him as He wants to be known. Sometimes meeting our ways, not exactly in what we've requested, but oftentimes in ways that we never even conceived. But prayers is not just a spiritual discipline. It is a necessity of our faith. I love what, what Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon, when he reflected on this passage that we looked at together this morning. He says, to walk on water is not an essential characteristic of faith, but to pray when you begin to sink is. <laughs> I love that. Regardless of his motivation, what we know for a fact is that Peter's first and only response was, God, save me. He turned to Jesus as his only hope. He didn't try to swim back to the boat. He didn't call out to his friends. He said, Jesus, save me. And I believe we should be inclined to do just the same. You'll remember that passage that we looked at together in Colossians that says, We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's at that moment of salvation when we're drowning in a sea of debt, a debt to sin. That we can't overcome on our own. And we know no one else can save us. And so what do we do? We reach out to Jesus in in faith. And we ask Him, rescue me. And I believe His response is just as it was with Peter that day. Immediately, He rescued him. You see, there are no Christians without the cross. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We are rescued when we turn from our sin and the awful circumstances that that finds us in and we trust in Him to set us free, to lift us up, to resurrect us to a new life with that same power that was resurrected resurrected Him out of the grave. That's what it is. But I want you to know something. Here's where the good news gets even better. It doesn't end there. If you look at Scripture and find the ways that God rescues us, it continues even as we trust Him. The Scripture tells us that He rescues the godly from temptation. 
It says that He rescues us from the power of sin. He rescues us from this present evil age. He rescues us from the wrath that is to come. So worship is the only right response when we understand the depths from which we have been rescued. It's like what's communicated in Zephaniah 3.17 when he writes, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to what? Save. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. What is it that brings you to your knees? How does God work in your life to cultivate a heart of worship? Does He do it in your difficulties? In your devotion? And ultimately, in your prayer faith as you reach out to Him. Learn to trust Him and find that He is faithful. Psalm 62, one of my favorite psalms, says, He alone is my rock and my salvation. And in Him, I will not be greatly shaken. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the beautiful truth of Your Word and what it does to strengthen, and guide, and direct us especially in those moments when we're surrounded by circumstances that may appear to be very frightening, threatening, troublesome, difficult. But I pray that this morning we all leave this place knowing with utmost conviction that you are with us. That you are ever-present, mighty to save, and you rescue us over and over again. May we call out to you in faith and trust in your faithfulness, Father. As we go throughout this week. I pray that we would be a people of worship. Even worshiping you in our difficulties. Worshiping you in our devotion as we sincerely seek to know you more intimately. And know and believe that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. I pray that we would be a people of prayer who seek to see things from your perspective and worship you because of the way you consistently rescue us. Father, may we find refuge in you our rock, and our salvation. In you we will not be greatly shaken. We proclaim that with utmost conviction today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.